I was born in Nigeria and at the age of seven and a half, my parents decided that we should immigrate to the United States. Their goal was to ensure that we had more opportunities. So I'm very grateful to both of them. I went back to visit Nigeria for the first time in 1992, around Christmas time. You know, around that time, maybe I was 10. One of the things we wanted to do during that trip was to visit my father's only sister, my godmother, my aunt. Her name was Miranda. My aunt was beautiful, known as like the beauty in our community, kind, wicked sense of humor. I have pictures of her holding me at my baptism. I was a chunky baby, so, you know, she probably had a lot of strength. In particular, what I remember is that I was doing a photo essay about my trip to Nigeria. I was busily snapping away and my aunt saw me taking pictures and she requested that I take pictures of her. She unfortunately had been diagnosed with breast cancer and my father hadn't traveled with us at that time and she wanted a way to just show him, this is what I'm going through, this is how I'm doing. And I was happy to, to you know, indulge her request, but I was not prepared for what I saw. From her supraclavicular area um, down onto her chest, it was just so, so dark, very much, you know, in contrast to the rest of her skin. I thought my aunt had had a mastectomy and that's why her skin looked so dark. And uh, her skin just looked marred and it was shocking for me. But I think I didn't let the shock register. I knew that I should just kind of be stoic about it and just take the pictures. I, I can only remember that interaction with her. I remember the feeling I had and how she made me feel at that visit. And it was that she was full of warmth, that she was caring, that she was tender, um, that she loved me and my siblings a lot. And I always wonder if she knew that that was gonna be our last time together. My aunt died um, Thanksgiving day in 1993. I was really upset because to my mind, if I make a request, if I make a prayer, then magically everything should get better. That was my thinking. And when she did not get better, it really, I, it, it, it rocked my world. All I knew was that I hated this disease. I wanted to do everything I could to make sure other people did not suffer from it. So from that time forward, I decided that I had a vendetta against cancer. It was just, I hate this thing and I am going to be part of the solution. I'm Katherine Price, and this is Advances in Care. The photos that Dr. Onyinye Balagun took of her aunt were stored away in her parents' house sometime after she returned home from her trip to Nigeria but she says they always stuck with her. Today, she is a radiation oncologist at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medicine. 
In the course of her career so far, she has worked to improve access to better radiation technology globally, initiated genetics research, and has even dipped her toes into venture capitalism for medical devices. If I were to summarize her career, I'd describe it as an exhaustive and multifaceted attack on cancer. But she describes it like this. I'm multi-passionate. I love to do many different things. I, I think it was in college that I started thinking, what can this look like tangibly? Which avenue am I going to use to be part of the solution? Dr. Balagoon realized there were many ways to wage her vendetta against cancer. There was drug development, of course, and medical oncology, surgical oncology. And I remember the first time I shadowed a surgical oncologist and I said, okay, prepare yourself. You're going to see a mastectomy. And so when we got into the operating room, I kind of steeled myself for this moment where when they removed the breast, I thought the skin would just become really dark and it didn't. So I started asking myself, why didn't her, you know, this patient's skin become really dark? It was after I decided to become a radiation oncologist, had already done my interviews, that I went to visit my parents. And my mom said, hey, these pictures, you took them a while ago. And it was the pictures I'd taken of my aunt. And with the knowledge I had gained, I realized, oh my goodness, those are the side effects of radiation. That's what I saw. Timing can be funny that way. The moment when Onyenye realized that her aunt's darkened skin was in fact damaged from radiation was mere days after she decided to become a radiation oncologist. It's just always so interesting to me how things come full circle and how even without knowing it, I ended up being in the field that basically had impacted her. I felt I'd really found my niche. I felt... I want to learn these skills. I want to learn how to harness the power of radiation. I'm just really happy with what I do. <laughs> in the years after medical school, Dr. Balagoon began working abroad in Armenia and Gabon. She designed a curriculum to teach oncologists about better radiation technology, like 3D conformal radiation therapy, for example, which allows oncologists to direct radiation beams to conform to tumor shapes so that they can avoid damaging healthy tissue. Her hope is to improve the quality of cancer care in middle and low-income countries. But like she said, she is multi-passionate. And while doing this work, cancer data began emerging that was telling a confounding story. In recent years, common cancers like breast and lung cancer have seen a decrease in cancer mortality. But some cancers were getting more deadly. The two cancers that are trending backwards are cervical and uterine cancer. We're not decreasing in morbidity. We're not decreasing in incidence. Everything is just going up, both incidence and mortality of uterine cancer, especially among Black women. Dr. Balagoon made the decision to zoom out. Improving the landscape of cancer care required more than just better radiation therapies or better trained oncologists. Cancer rates and mortality rates were rising disproportionately for Black women, and Dr. Balagoon realized more research was needed to figure out why. I wanted to take a look at cancer disparities within New York City. And in my mind, the big story was going to be cervical cancer disparities are still present. I didn't know if they were getting worse. 
But I wanted to basically, if they were, shine a light on that. Or if they were still in existence, shine a light on that. And I just said, you know, why don't I just take a bird's eye view and look at everything? Let me look at ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, vulvar, uterine cancer. And my eyes nearly jumped out of my head when I was looking at the statistics for uterine cancer. Black women's uterine cancer incidence has been increasing at a faster rate than other races, so much so that in the mid-2000s, the incidence surpassed that of white women. Not only that, black women are dying from their diagnoses twice as often. If you look at the five-year survival for a white woman living in the United States, it's about 84%. If you look at a black woman with endometrial cancer diagnosis, her five-year survival probability is 62%. And the trends are going in the wrong way. Why? Finding answers to these questions is understandably not straightforward. An analysis of patient histories doesn't often take into account softer data, like access to healthcare, medical literacy, and systemic racism. When it comes to the causes of cancer disparities, we know that there are social determinants of health that contribute to these disparities. It involves health literacy. If you see postmenopausal spotting, do you know what it is? In order to go to the doctor quickly enough that we can catch the cancer hopefully early, do you have health insurance? Are you in a location where you have the ability to get to a healthcare center easily? Do you have the money to pay for healthcare? And we also know that it involves your environment because there are environmental risk factors that contribute to an increased risk of cancer. But Dr. Balagoon isn't certain that these social determinants can account for the disparities on their own. There may be something genetic at play. Enter the Polyethnic 1000 study. Basically, we are recruiting underrepresented populations into genomic studies because they are usually not included in the numbers that they should be. This is an initiative of the New York Genome Center, in partnership with research hospitals like New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medicine, to advance genomic cancer research in underserved populations. Now, as part of this study, Dr. Balagoon is overseeing an effort to search for clues about the uterine cancer disparity in the biology of Black cancer patients. We're looking for potential mutations or polymorphisms specific to a certain group of individuals that may increase their risk of certain cancers. Black women with diagnoses are offered an opportunity to participate if they qualify. As part of the study, patients are asked a slew of questions about potential social determinants. And then the geneticists at Polyethnic 1000 sequence the patient's genomes. We know race is made up. It's kind of an arbitrary means of classifying people according to their skin color, right? Up to today, people have relied on self-reported race, just black, white, which doesn't tell us much. When you say black, they could be of Caribbean heritage. It could be someone who's Afro-Latina. There's so much that's under the umbrella of black. What we're looking to do is to say, okay, Yes, this person said they were Black, but we see in their genome that they have 90% African ancestry. Some of the colleagues that I worked with, like um, Melissa Davis and Lisa Newman, have done this kind of teasing out of African ancestry and its relationship to breast cancer. They've shown that the patterns 
for breast cancer and the genomic expression for breast cancer in East Africa is is different from that in West Africa. And so I want to do the same for endometrial cancer to be able to kind of break down the percentages and the relative contributions from different backgrounds. That's the beauty of this research. We're not just saying, oh, you're Black, because that doesn't give the granularity that we need in order to really figure out Is there a different risk factor for people who are from South African heritage? So we're going to be able to have that level of granularity. It's important to say that doing this work is uncomfortable at times. People are understandably wary of blaming poor cancer outcomes on the genetics of Black people. I don't want to um, discredit the fact that there has been a lot of research done to show that a lot of these cancer disparities are attributed to, you know, systemic racism and issues with access to care. But specifically with uterine cancer research, there have been studies conducted by the GOG that hold certain factors equal, socioeconomic level equal, educational level equal. And yet still, Black women come out with worse outcomes. We have to attribute some of these differences to genomic factors that have not yet been studied. There is unfortunately a school of thought that says, don't look at genomics, you know, 99% of our genome is the same, but you cannot deny that the percent, even though it's less than 1% that's different, it makes a difference in terms of how we look, in terms of our risk for certain diseases, it matters. I'm not here to say, oh, it's our fault or it's it's our bodies. I don't ascribe to that, but we need to explore all aspects of it. And so that's why as part of the Polyethnic 1000 Project, we are not just collecting tumor samples, you know, sequencing them and saying, oh, these are the genes that we see that are upregulated or downregulated. We're also taking care to collect sociodemographic information. So we want to see what's the interplay? What are things maybe that are coming together to drive up your risk of developing an aggressive uterine cancer? I don't see it as a this or that. It is both an and. Once the study is complete, Dr. Balagoon hopes to have a clearer picture as to who has higher risk and what exactly is causing that risk. With that information, it could be possible to make huge improvements to cancer mortality rates. Can we find new strategies for screening? Can we find new strategies for treatment? Right now, there's no way that's widely used to screen for endometrial cancer. We haven't found that modality that makes it cost-effective. You know, what age do we start at? Who do we screen? Maybe there's a genomic mutation that puts you at higher risk. Then is that a population that we should be screening regularly so that we can catch the cancer earlier? And then also, if we do find a genomic mutation in a number of these cancers, That, of course, leads to, is there a way we can have a drug that exploits that mutation? It can't can't stay like this. We have to find new strategies because endometrial cancer just continues to skyrocket. So 
we need better strategies. And I'm really excited about what we're going to find out and hopeful that it will, you know, move the needle when it comes to changing um, the likelihood of survival, especially for Black women. The Polyethnic 1000 data is coming. But in the meantime, more patients than ever are undergoing treatment for uterine cancers. That's why another area of passion for Dr. Balagoon is finding ways to improve the quality of patient care given during cancer treatment. In 2020, I met Eve McDavid. She, at the time, was a tech executive, 33 years old. You know, she had one daughter and was 34 weeks pregnant with a son. And um, when I met her, she had just been diagnosed with stage 2B um, cervical cancer. We started treatment right away. Eve had a 7-centimeter cervical tumor, and it was growing fast. She needed aggressive treatment, which meant that her son needed to be delivered early by C-section in the days after her diagnosis. Eve's story was particularly meaningful to me because I knew she had a young daughter at home. I knew she just delivered a son and I wanted her to go home and have the opportunity to create memories with her children. I felt that this woman has a chance at cure. In order to cure cervical cancer that has gone beyond a certain stage, so if something is larger than four centimeters or it's adherent to certain structures inside the body, like the pelvic side wall or the parametria, or if if cervical cancer has spread to the lymph nodes, we know that surgery alone is not going to be enough. And in her case, we needed to proceed with chemotherapy and radiation. Eve started with six rounds of weekly chemotherapy, which was quickly followed by a radiation treatment plan. First, from the outside, for about five weeks on a daily basis, Monday through Friday, you're going to give external beam radiation therapy focused on the pelvic lymph nodes, the cervix, the uterus, um, the vagina. She had a great response to the initial first phase of treatment. And then this is the crucial part you have to give internal radiation called brachytherapy. Brachytherapy is radiation administered internally in the uterus, directly aimed at the tumor. And while this step is extremely important, the standard brachytherapy device is unconscionably outdated. The tools that we use right now, the template for them, the originals were approved before women were included in clinical trials in 1976. The tools can be excruciatingly painful. The pain is likened to childbirth, and this is from the lips of cervical cancer survivors. There have been women who say, I would rather take my chances with dying than to put myself through this cervical cancer treatment. Dr. Balagoon does have the good fortune to work with anesthetists while she's implanting the brachytherapy device, so she does her best to limit that excruciating pain. But in many other countries, patients are left with nothing more than an oral painkiller. Imagine getting through childbirth with a pill of Xanax or Tylenol. I, I could not do it. And, you know, it just it made me think of my, you know, my aunt. 
Even though Eve McDavid had the best possible care scenario for her brachytherapy, she says she found the procedures, quote, impossible. Eve started asking me, she said, do you think we can do these procedures better, these brachytherapy procedures? And I told her, I know we can do it better. In the midst of the procedure, she'd be talking to me and saying, hey, can I see those those devices? She's very motivated. Dr. Balagoon wanted Eve to focus on getting better first. But a year later, once Eve was in remission, Dr. Balagoon called her and they began working together to bring brachytherapy into the 21st century. Dr. Balagoon and Eve are now exploring how to design a brachytherapy device that's better suited to women's bodies, less painful, and that can deliver better treatment. A lot of the devices we use are quite rigid. So with the device that we're building, we want to improve upon its adaptability to the female anatomy. We also want to solve for the limitations that the physicians face. So one of the limitations is the ability to alter the configuration of the device after you've put it in place. So that's what we want to do is to provide that kind of flexibility and ability to change things if needed so that we can always get the optimal plan. When it comes to medical device research, it feels like devices are brought to the patient population and they say, here you go, this is what we created. And Eve and I are trying to reimagine how that process goes. Eve is a survivor, a patient advocate. She has insights that I could never possibly have. How do I ensure that the technology I use as a radiation oncologist is optimal and that it, 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 it achieves its goals while being patient-centered, while making sure that people are not left traumatized from their treatments and choosing to walk away from it. I spoke with a group of endometrial cancer survivors and they said a risk factor for death is a physician who doesn't care about you. And I never heard anyone say something like that and it just struck me to my core. I know many of us, most of us come to medicine to do a good job and it's not easy. The days are long. You give a lot, especially as an oncologist, you give a lot. But it it behooves us when people are bringing concerns to sit up and listen and, and, and do your part to really take notice of what they're trying to tell you. And I will say especially, especially for Black individuals, because we know that there is a tendency to not acknowledge their pain or to underplay their symptoms the voice of the people we take care of matters. So many thanks to Dr. Balagoon for speaking with us. I'm Catherine Price. Advances in Care is a production of New York Presbyterian Hospital. As a reminder, the views shared on this podcast solely reflect the expertise and experience of our guests. To find more amazing stories about the pioneering physicians at New York Presbyterian, go to nyp.org slash advances.